0: Well, it's spooky season, and ha and it's time to have our first ever Halloween special. Welcome to BBS Mindful Minutes, a student-led podcast with the goal of enhancing the student experience through conversations relevant to student life, research, academics, and more.
1: Today, we are talking to Dr. McIntyre, Associate Professor and Lab Director of the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory Lab. She explains why we are drawn to frightening experiences and what happens when our neurons and body get spooked. Don't ghost us, keep tooming in. Mwahaha! But
0: well, hello, Dr. McIntyre. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this spooky episode. <laughs> um, first, we'll just get into it. And we want to ask you, what makes us seek fearful experiences like watching scary movies, riding a roller coaster, or visiting haunted houses?
2: Well, who doesn't want to be brave? You know, you you need to work at it just like everything else. Um, So you can actually learn to regulate your emotions with practice. So I I think that's what we typically are doing when we subject ourselves to these experiences. We're training ourselves to master our own emotions. Um, So, you know, FDR famously said, uh, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And fear can be pretty scary, right? So um, I, I think with many exposures to our own sensation of fear, we can learn how to master it. We can learn that the fear response itself isn't a threat, but it takes some experience. It takes training. And so in a way, I think people are training themselves, whether they mean to or not, by exposing themselves to these kinds of events. But also, you know, I mean, that is actually the basis for exposure therapy. So there is some evidence that this works. Um, So if somebody has phobias or specific fears or post-traumatic stress disorder, that's exactly how they're treated. They're actually exposed to those things that produce fear, those triggers, until eventually they learn that those triggers themselves, the fear response itself is not really something to be feared. It's something that... um, that they learn to be more comfortable with but it it requires new learning and training and then there's also you know the pride of making it through and um, camaraderie you know you usually do that with friends and then you you build relationships that way from screaming together and grabbing each other so so there are lots of benefits to doing this And then there's sensation seeking, right? So, you know, that feeling of excitement. So that that sympathetic fight or flight response that adrenaline rush isn't always a bad thing. You know, it helps us to feel really alert and focused and it helps us to feel strong and powerful and energized. So um, I think that actually there's a lot to be gained by exposing ourselves to these scary movies and haunted houses.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the idea of kind of building up a tolerance and kind of working your way up to learning to not be so afraid. And then that little thrill that you get, like there are plenty of like adrenaline junkies and people who just love this time of year because they love scary Mm -hmm. movies. They love roller coasters. They love to be uh, shocked. Um, So along with that adrenaline rush, like tell us more about what happens in the body when we do have a fearful experience.
2: Yeah, so you know, you usually, like if you're in a haunted house, often fi- you'll find that you you scream before you even know what's happening to you, right? <laughs> yeah. So first you scream, and then you laugh at yourself, right? So. The way we think about that is it's it's this really primitive system in the brain that involves the amygdala and the brainstem that is really reflexive. You know, it keeps us alive. It helps us to act quickly and get out of danger quickly. And it kicks off that sympathetic fight or flight response, which is what produces that increase in adrenaline, which makes you kind of shaky, gives you lots of energy, increases your heart rate, expands your lung capacity and, you know, makes your arm hair stand up, all of that. And, and, and most of that actually can help you to get out of danger if you really are in danger. So it makes you act quickly and, and it can help you to have a lot of endurance so you can run fast and far and get out of trouble. Um, But there's another system in the brain that's more advanced, the neocortex, it's more evolutionarily advanced. And that helps us to really evaluate the system. So it takes a little bit of time, you know, so first you scream, and you get yourself out of trouble. And that's great, because better safe than sorry. But then this more evaluative system kicks in, and recognizes that that guy with the creepy mask is just an actor, and the axe is made out of plastic. And so, thankfully, we were capable of recognizing that. And, and so that's when, you know, that neocortex can inhibit that fear response, can inhibit that fear system. And, and, and then that's when we find ourselves just laughing at ourselves, right? We realize the ridiculousness of the situation. Um, so, you know, you get that little adrenaline rush, but you also um, are safe. So so that can be fun too. And you recognize that you're safe very quickly.
0: Now that reminds me, have you seen a celebrity reactions to haunted houses no (laughs) it's quite funny um but basically as you said you know you these celebrities they know that they're going to enter a haunted house you know they know they're going to be scared but yet they still go in um and it's fascinating to see that as you said the first system that kicks in that almost the reptilian brain kind of takes over like oh there's this weird person that's alive that is dressed in this like monster costume or this zombie or has like fake blood on them like they they see as a threat as you know you said before but then the neocortex as you said takes over and they're like oh i'm so so stupid that i'm like scared of this (laughs) actor that gets paid to have fake blood on them to scare and they just like creepily like hide back in the shadows it's it's really funny but um so that's really interesting that we see, we seek these fearful experiences um, in these really safe contexts. Um, but why are some fearful experiences rewarding in safe contexts and potentially detrimental and threatening contexts?
2: Fearful experiences rewarding in safe contexts and detrimental in threatening contexts. Well, a couple things I have to say about that. One is um, our attitude about, about our fear response actually affects our physiological fear response. So there've been some studies that show that, you know, if you take college students and you uh, ask them to read about the benefits of stress, and then you stress them um, versus college students who don't learn about the benefits of stress, they learn that stress is really damaging to the body, and then you stress them, their physiological responses are different. So those that are aware of the benefits of stress, you see that, that the blood pressure doesn't go up as much with the same stress experience. So I think that um, it's important to recognize that stress itself isn't necessarily damaging, but it's how we perceive it that can really influence what it does to us. Um, but, you know, stress, of course can be, uh, you know, we talked about how it can be rewarding because you get that adrenaline rush and you feel like you've conquered something and you learn to deal with it better in the future. Um, But it can be uh, detrimental and threatening context when we talk about the fight or flight response, but some people call it the fight, flight or freeze response. So you know, that would be an example of when the fear really is detrimental. Um, If you're freezing and there's a freight train headed your way, for example, I mean, freezing has its its place. You know, if you're prey and there's a predator hasn't spotted you yet, freezing may be the, the way to go. But sometimes the selection of the response is not exactly right. And so freezing can be really detrimental in that situation. And you may have had that experience if you're about to give a public you know, speak in public, and suddenly you can't remember any of the words, and you're like a deer in the headlights, right? The deer in the headlights is another example of freezing oh, yes. in a detrimental way. Um, so, so you know, that actually leads to to my interest, which is the relationship between fear and memory.
1: <laughs> well, that is
0: the perfect transition. To this question it just reminds me that even each response to a fearful experience whether good or bad it's so personalized so could you briefly explain a little bit of of that perspective as well
2: so you mean why do different people respond differently some would freeze and some would
0: yes that's perfectly worded fight fight.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh you know that's a really good question in the animal world it does seem like there's a difference and and responses fear responses where females are more active than males males tend to freeze whereas females do tend to have a more active avoidance response um but i actually don't know of that in humans as far as i'm i i have not seen that yet in humans but it'd be an interesting study to do and i think it could be done interesting yeah
0: it's cool to plant that little seed
2: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah I'll look it up. If I find it, I'll let you know. But I haven't seen anything.
0: Interesting. Thank you.
2: Yes. But you're absolutely right. There are individual differences in responses. And I suppose it has to do with, I'm speculating here, but I would suppose that it has to do with previous experiences, shaping who we are and how we deal with things. What's worked for us in the past, you know? Yes, exactly. But what's worked in the past is not always what works in the future.
0: That's very true. And sometimes our bodies overequips itself. and that's what leads us to over what what people can say overreact to a fearful experience. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense.
1: So far we've been talking about fear in terms of adrenaline seeking or in terms of kind of day-to-day stressors, day-to-day fears, or fears within safe context that we put ourselves in. But there's also the type of fear that can be sort of traumatic and lead to disorders like PTSD. Um, and we know that there's a strong relationship between fear and memory. And I know that that's personally what you guys study in your lab. So if you could just explain to us, what is the connection between fear and memory? Why are they so intimately related?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it is one that really interests me and the people in my lab. Um, well, you know, we were just talking about being, um, damaged or, or or having a fear response that can be detrimental. And um, there can be a certain level of, of fear or stress that, that can be paralyzing and it actually can interfere with our memory, our memory recall. So if you are trying to give, uh, a, a speak publicly or take an exam and you really, really want to do well and you've studied hard and you, you think you know everything, but suddenly you find that you can't recall the answers because you're so stressed, these, these, these things can happen. And, and those are other examples of when stress can be debilitating. If it's a certain amount, it actually can interfere with our memory retrieval. But the same amount of stress hormones that interferes with memory retrieval, remarkably can actually enhance our consolidation of new memories. So this makes sense if you think about it because if you like to explore caves and you happen to encounter a bear in one of those caves, you should learn very quickly to avoid that cave, so if you need to have many trials, if you have to rehearse that many times before you learn that that cave is where the bear lives, you're, you're just not going to make it, right? So that's the kind of memory you need to store right away and for the long term. So you don't make that mistake over and over again. Um, so it's beneficial to store these important memories. It's beneficial to our survival. Uh, so that's something that interests us. We can understand pretty easily why we store these memories so quickly and they last a long time and they're generalized, but we don't actually understand very well how that happens. So that's what we're looking at in our lab. What is the physio? what is the biological mechanism of that?
1: Awesome. And then that leads me to the next question of, I know that fearful memories can be stored stronger for protection, but when that system is kind of hijacked and overexpressed, like in situations like PTSD pathology, how does that trauma then create the PTSD itself in the patient?
2: Yeah, it's not really clear how that trauma produces PTSD. What we know about PTSD is that not everybody who experiences a trauma develops PTSD. So only a subset of people, up to 30% of people generally who experience a really profound trauma. Will develop PTSD. And there are some things that can predispose people to developing PTSD. One is having previous traumas um, can predispose people to developing PTSD from a specific trauma. Um, and another thing that I think is really interesting about people who have PTSD is they show impairments in their ability to um, extinguish conditioned fears. So what that means is, you know, people can learn to fear things that aren't actually dangerous. Um, so, you know, people who have been to Afghanistan and experienced a roadside bomb uh, may have seen some debris by the side of the road right before the bomb. And after that, they start to be very fearful whenever they they see debris by the side of the road or they smell smoke or they smell gasoline, these kinds of things that aren't inherently dangerous can be triggers and can produce a fear response that can be treated with exposure-based therapy, which we just talked about. So essentially somebody who has PTSD can be exposed to those things through exposure therapy over and over again until eventually they learn that those things themselves are not hazardous. Um, But we don't really understand what what causes the PTSD. We know a lot about people after they develop PTSD, but it's hard to know if those differences existed before and are the cause, or if those differences happen because of the trauma that led to the PTSD.
1: Well, I know that your lab right now is currently actively exploring those questions. So um, tell us a little bit about the research your lab does and how you're exploring both the underpinnings of fear disorders like PTSD and anxiety and potential treatments for these disorders.
2: Okay, so we are interested in um, extinction of conditioned fear. So I told you that conditioned fear is associating things that are dangerous with a memory, a really traumatic memory. And extinction of conditioned fear is uh, what happens in exposure therapy where you learn those things themselves are not inherently dangerous. So it's new learning, and it's called extinction. And for some reason, people who have PTSD show impairments in their ability to extinguish conditioned fear. So even in controlled laboratory studies, you can teach them that when this light is on, you're going to get a little shock on your hand. And then, and that's fear conditioning. And then you shine the light a bunch of times without the shock. And eventually, people will stop getting that sweaty palm response in the presence of the light. They stop showing that conditioned fear response. but people with PTSD failed to extinguish that conditioned fear. So that might be why they have PTSD in the first place, but it interferes with progress and exposure therapy, which is designed to teach them extinction of conditioned fear. So we're interested in um, trying to tap into the systems that we know are involved in the enhancement of these emotionally arousing memories. So we're trying to use what we've learned about how these emotionally arousing memories are stored in order to help people uh, to build really strong, healthy, happy memories that can compete with those traumatic memories. So in exposure-based therapy, for example, they need to learn something new. And what they learn is based on many repetitions. They're exposed many times to these reminders. And over time, they learn, yeah, I've heard that sound of a helicopter a bunch of times and nothing bad happened to anybody. Or I saw that pile of debris a bunch of times and and no cars exploded. Um, So it's not that they forget what happened, but they just learn this new information and it helps take precedence over the the information that they gained in the trauma. But over time, people tend to relapse. And that could be because what they learn in the therapy is based on repetitions and those kinds of memories decay if you don't practice them, whereas trauma memories persist. So uh, we're interested in trying to tap into the same mechanisms that help us to store these really robust trauma memories in order to produce these extinction memories that can compete with the trauma memory. So what we know about emotional arousal, we could administer something like adrenaline to, to make the memory stronger, but that would activate that sympathetic fight or flight response. And if you administer adrenaline or something that stimulates adrenaline, people who have PTSD, they often have panic attacks. So what we're doing in the lab now is we're using stimulation of the vagus nerve, um, which we think bypasses that whole sympathetic fight or flight response, but it activates uh, the pathways in the brain that are involved in the storage of these important memories. It facilitates plasticity changes in the brain that support these new memories. Um, by activating the same systems that help us to store emotionally arousing memories. With this, um, we have found that we can enhance extinction of conditioned fear with vagus nerve stimulation. We can enhance extinction of conditioned fear in in rats. We produce a longer lasting extinction of conditioned fear, a more generalized extinction of conditioned fear. Um, And it seems to be uh, distinct from the kind of extinction that you develop with many repeat repetitions because it, it has different effects on the brain that we can measure with electrophysiology. Uh, so now we're trying to test our hypothesis that that the reason these memories, these extinction memories are so long lasting and generalized is because VNS, vagus nerve stimulation taps into the same mechanisms. So Deborah Calderon is a PhD student and her thesis, her dissertation work is is based on this, um, or it's designed to test this hypothesis that this system that's involved in storage of emotionally arousing memories is what's engaged when we stimulate the vagus nerve. So she's starting by using something called optogenetics, which uh, uses light to um, activate these proteins that are responsive to light. These proteins can be infused into the brain using a virus. The virus can infect the cells in a specific area of the brain and the opsin protein is expressed in the membranes of neurons, and it's responsive to light. So if you shine a light on some of these proteins, they will open up and allow sodium to come into the neurons and produce action potentials. Some of them are inhibitory opsins. So if you shine the light on them, they uh, allow um, they they pump positive ions out of the cell, or they allow they allow negative ions in. So we are using an inhibitory opsin. And this inhibits activity in an area of the brain called the locus coeruleus. This is an area that produces norepinephrine and releases it all over the brain. And it's activated at times of emotional arousal. So we're testing the hypothesis that vagus nerve stimulation uh, activates or engages this system in order to facilitate the storage of new memories, these strong emotional like memories that are long-lasting and generalized, so using optogenetics, uh, Deborah is she she expresses this inhibitory opsin protein in the locus coeruleus specifically, and then she implants surgically implants an optic fiber. So when she attaches that to a laser, it very briefly can inactivate. The locus ceruleus, and what we like about it is that it's so temporally controlled. It's not like lesioning the area and then it's gone, and you don't know if that that big old hole in the brain is what's causing the problem, or if it's because that area had to be engaged and involved in that process that you're testing exactly, right? So with optogenetics, you can shine the light with a millisecond control. And um, so what Deborah's doing is she's actually administering vagus nerve stimulation to enhance extinction of conditioned fear in rats, but simultaneously inhibiting the locus coeruleus just when she's giving this brief train of vagus nerve stimulation. So The the locus coeruleus is available to the rats. They can learn things. They can learn extinction, but it's just inhibited when she's giving vagus nerve stimulation. So this is to test whether the locus coeruleus mediates this effect of the vagus nerve. We think it might because people get vagus nerve stimulation for epilepsy and for depression. Um, It's been used in people since 1997, and it was recently approved for treatment of stroke uh, and that is thanks to some people here at the university who are working on vagus nerve stimulation and rehabilitation from stroke but uh, when you lesion the locus aurelius the vagus nerve stimulation doesn't prevent seizures anymore. So this implicates the locus ceruleus and vagus nerve stimulation effects. And we already know that the locus ceruleus is important for emotional learning. So Deborah's studies are directly testing whether the locus ceruleus is critically involved in the vagus nerve stimulation enhancement of extinction. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, I am truly fascinated. (laughs) That is such an important... As, this is such important work and um I read this book called the body keeps the score
2: oh you read uh, that as a
0: random, oh, yes um yeah good really, for you really vulnerable for a minute, but you know I've had some traumatic experiences in the past and, and so that helped me understand that it's not that like there's so much there's only so much we can do to rationalize you know our our past experiences oh that's that's not gonna happen again or you know maybe that was a stupid response a lot of people are so hard on themselves, and um, and because we don't know that actually our body naturally stores all the traumatic experiences into the first system, like what you said before, and so it's really amazing that you are looking into the vagus nerve. Yeah, I've, I mean, I'm trying to still wrap my head around it because it's like. I did not know this this is happening, especially at our university. This is really fascinating research, and I cannot wait to see how many people you help with this research. Let's kind of lead to the next question of what inspired you to establish this work um, in the neurobiology of learning and memory lab?
2: Well, uh, you know, when I was a student, an undergraduate student, I didn't know what I wanted to do, I went to college to play soccer because I got a scholarship for that. So that's what I wanted to do, play soccer. Um, And I majored in literature because I liked reading books. And um, so I started to uh, take psychology classes because I thought if I understood the human mind better, then I would be a better writer. And I thought maybe my career would be writing fiction because I enjoyed doing that. And then as I was taking these psychology courses, well, one of them I had to take was biological psychology. I I had to take that to get a minor in psychology and everybody dreaded that class because it was so hard, but I loved it. It really opened doors for me. It answered all of my questions and simultaneously I was working, uh, I had, well, I had a summer job every summer. I worked with kids with autism spectrum disorders. And I was just fascinated by their cognition because it just seemed within an individual to be variable. And so I I really wanted to understand why sometimes they were so alert and present and capable and other times not. Um, So I was fascinated by that to begin with. And some of those questions were addressed in my biological psychology course. And I felt like the tools were available to start asking these questions in biological psychology. And I also had an internship um, at a place called the Center for Mental Health Policy. And my job was to code these interviews with homeless families. And uh, the the center's mission was to identify the needs of these homeless families. So I got to read all of these interviews and and code them. And it was really clear to me that these families, many of them, had homes before and and careers before. But because of mental illness or addiction, they, they lost it all. And uh, to try to think about what they need was frustrating for me because what they needed was to get well. And so, you know, we were providing clothes and we were providing rides to jobs, but they just needed to get well. And that seemed like a problem that I wanted to work on. So um, when I was taking this class, everything just seemed to come together for me. And um, the instructor invited me to work in his lab which uh, he told me then when I worked in his lab that I could get a PhD for free, and in fact, I could get paid for it. So, you know, I always thought, no, grad school is not for me. I can't afford it. But when I I learned that, I was thrilled. And um, so, I, of course, applied to graduate school to PhD programs. Um, So, I guess I was lucky that all of those things happened to me at the right time. But, you know, I went to graduate school to study uh, learning and memory. The first lab that I was in was a drug addiction lab. And as I told you, I was really interested in addictions. But I see addictions as a learning, uh, as a maladaptive learning, um, because uh, typically people with addictions, you know, um, they also are hyper responsive to triggers in the environment. So somebody... Has alcoholism, then they go to AA. They're immediately instructed not to go to the bar because the bar is full of those triggers and will immediately start that craving response, right? And um, the seeking, the the alcohol seeking response. So, all of these addictions or addictive behaviors tend to be triggered by reminders. So I think of them as strong associations that are, um, you know, these addictive substances actually make use of the systems in our. It's similar to what we're proposing to do, or we're, we're, we're proposing to hack into these systems that help us to store memories. That's essentially what these addictive substances do, but they reinforce the taking behavior. The drug taking behavior is so strongly reinforced that it's really hard to get over. So I was first interested in that. And then as a PhD student, I continued to study learning and memory. And the kind of memory that you store very rapidly uh, And so you can identify the time when that memory was stored is a stressful memory. And that's how I got into stressful memories. And then I wanted to come back full circle and and use what we learned to try to help people who struggle with mental illness, particularly mental illnesses like addiction, like, I'm sorry, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. But even vagus nerve stimulation can be used with exposure therapy to treat addictions. And Dr. Sven Kroner is working on that here
1: wow it's so fascinating how we come into college thinking we know what we want to do and then we're taken on this completely other different path um but i'm so glad that you got interested in psychology and then learning in memory and then drug addiction and then ptsd pathology because um it seems like your lab is doing great work that will prevent potentially soon provide awesome therapeutics and a better understanding of PTSD pathology that will hopefully soon help a lot of people out there who are
2: struggling. Yeah, the Texas Biomedical Device Center actually has a a human trial that's ongoing right now It's an open label trial using uh, an electrode that Dr. Robert Reniker developed and it's a wireless electrode. So it's better than what's been used in people for epilepsy and depression for this purpose. It's smaller and, and doesn't require a battery implant. So I'm really excited to see how that will turn out.
1: Yeah, we all can't wait wow. to see where the future of this research takes us. Yes, but we just wanted to so say much. thank you so much for coming onto yes. the podcast and getting spooky with us for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Are
2: you anything fun for Halloween, Dr. McIntyre? You know, I like to just see the little kids, so we just sit out on the porch with our neighbors, and sometimes every, you know, we all bring appetizers and drinks and sit by. If Aww. it's cold, we have a little fire in the front and see all the little kids come by. It's a good neighborhood for it.
0: That's so sweet. Yeah, our kids yeah. are too old
2: for it, but uh, you know, they'll go <laughs> to parties.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and um, giving us insight about fearful experiences and PTSD and the work that you're doing in your lab. I think it is really fascinating what your lab is doing. Um, and I know it's going to help so many people in the future. So looking forward to see what's going to
2: happen. Thank you. It was my pleasure and thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you Dr.
0: McIntyre for joining us on this haunting episode. We hope you had a scary good time with us and learned something new. Have a spectacular Halloween and stay safe everyone. I swear that was the last Halloween fun.
1: BBS Mindful Minutes has been brought to you by the UTD School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences. Follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let us know what you'd like to listen to next by filling out our survey linked in the
2: description.